You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, One Step Off the Grid and the EV Focus, The Driven. And joining me as usual um, is ITK Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well, uh, even as the world hits record temperatures and we've got a great guest this week. Well, we do indeed. In fact, um, the temperature um, records are just quite astonishing, really. On Monday, we hit the highest um, planetary average for a day, and that was broken again on Tuesday. I think we've had the um, seeing reports coming through that it's been the hottest week ever on record, and June was the hottest month, and 2023 will probably be the hottest year, and if that's not, then 2024 almost certainly will be as the El Nino kicks in. But to explain all of that a lot more coherently than either you or I can, David, um, you have interviewed Kimberly Reed from Monash University, I understand. Yes, she's a postdoctoral research uh, fellow there, and, and here's this interview. Kim Reed, postdoctoral fellow at uh, Monash University, thanks very much for, for joining Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, I know we're going to talk a little bit about climate change today, uh, but I thought I would just start off for our audience's benefit uh, talking a little bit about energy. Um, And the context of this for me is that Australia's electricity production is about 200 terawatt hours. China's electricity production is about 8,000 terawatt hours. Global thermal energy production, that's coal and gas and oil all around the world, Uh, has an energy content of about 140,000 terawatt hours. And uh, global ocean heat change, uh, if I've done the sums correctly, always something I'm never that confident of, is about 4 million terawatt hours of change per year. Or I think it uh, comes to something over 7 zettajoules uh, when you measure it that way. So uh, my point is that we don't talk enough about climate change and the science of it on this podcast, but it is, uh, you know, absolutely dominant relative to the things that we normally talk about in in terms of the size and scale, and therefore I think the long-term impacts on anything. Now, Kim, uh, sorry to uh, distract from that, but you uh, wrote uh, an article or published an article in The Conversation today, uh, along with another number of other articles that uh, I've seen recently, pointing out that the world's been um, hitting uh, a global high in temperature uh, in recent recorded history. Could you just talk a little bit about um, how extreme the observation is and some of the things that uh, are being put forward as explanations for why that's happening now? Yeah, I mean, the weather lately and climate has really captured the world's attention just because the records are tumbling day after day. I think last Monday, although that would be Tuesday Australian time, we recorded the hottest day ever for the globe, on record, of course. And then that was beaten the following day. If you look at any kind of map of global ocean temperatures at the moment, you just see red everywhere. It's just hot everywhere. 
Antarctic sea ice is at a record low levels and it's the middle of winter down here in the southern hemisphere, of course. And so the obvious question is, why are all these records tumbling at once? And the answer is? The answer is, well, as usual, it's a combination of factors. We can't just point to one. But one of the big, of course, issues that we know about is global warming. We've been pumping all these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which helps trap some of the heat on Earth. And a lot of this heat, about 90% of this heat, is actually stored in the ocean. As you mentioned before, the however many zettajoules, which I don't even know how many zeros that is, but I'm pretty sure it's close to 20 zeros of joules of energy is stored in the ocean. And so the last few years we've had a La Nina event and that's kind of hidden a lot of the heat that has been stored in the ocean. And as we swing into this El Nino, what's happening is the heat is being redistributed from the ocean to the atmosphere, to the surface. And that's why we're seeing all these surface temperature records plummet. There is also talk about shifts in what we call aerosols. So these are tiny particles that can reflect sunlight, things like dust, things like sulfur dioxide. We've seen a reduction of these at the moment. One of the reasons for this is just there's been less bursts of wind across the Saharan desert blowing dust over the Atlantic Ocean. And that combination of factors has actually led to, led to this unusual heat over the entire ocean and surface where we live. So you mentioned um, uh, El Nino and La Nina. Uh, one is ocean, uh, one, you know, in Australia, we've always known uh, El Nino since the 1960s, at least, when I first heard the term has been associated with um, drought and La Nina with rain. Uh, but uh, I guess it's kind of, could you just talk a, a little bit about, to start with, I think, if, if you'd like to, about what causes one and then the other, uh, ocean con currents and winds? It's quite a complicated thing, isn't it, really? Yeah, so El Nino and La Nina refer to shifts in the winds and ocean temperatures across the Pacific Ocean. So in a normal situation, we have trade winds blowing from east to west across the Pacific Ocean. During a La Nina event, we get an increase in cold ocean, cold ocean water upwelling, so rising from deep to the surface off the coast of South America. And this helps to enhance the trade winds across the Pacific. And we also tend to get warmer ocean temperatures, or well, the winds sort of push the warmer ocean temperatures closer towards Australia. So we have cold ocean temperatures towards South America, warm ocean temperatures towards Australia, and this increase in winds blowing from east to west towards Australia. And so this combination is why we tend to get wetter than average and cooler than average temperatures during a La Nina over Australia, particularly Eastern Australia. Western Australia is less affected by what's going on in the Pacific. The El Nino is the flip of that. So these winds tend to weaken and we get anomalous, unusual warm water off the coast of South America. And this sort of pushes um, a region of convection. So a region where we get lots of stormy weather that occurs across the equator away from Australia. We tend to get colder ocean temperatures around Australia. And so all this rainfall is pushed out into the ocean away from Australia. And that's why we tend to get hot and drier conditions during an El Nino over eastern Australia. And, and so as I think uh, uh, I discussed previously with Andy Pittman, the fact is that 
global warming can be associated with more rain and also drought, just depending on what the winds essentially are doing, if, if I was to break it down to the most simplest <laughs> thing. Yes, rainfall and climate change is incredibly complex. We understand that temperatures are rising with climate change, that's super clear, but rainfall is sort of a multi-scale problem. So it really depends on the time frame that you're looking at. So there are two ingredients to rainfall, what we call the thermodynamics, which in simple terms is just the moisture, how wet the atmosphere is, and the dynamics, and that's what we call the wind. So the positioning of the weather systems, the positioning of the lows and highs and cold fronts that bring the rain. And so we understand with climate change that the thermodynamic aspect so is going to increase. So it's the atmosphere is going to be wetter. And, but, and I think as it warms up, it, it, that's, it can hold more moisture, and that's kind of what's going on? Yeah, so the general stat is it's a 7% increase in moisture per degree warming that the atmosphere can hold. And so this is really important for your short-term things like short-term thunderstorms, your sub-hourly rainfall, so these really intense downbursts that will occur for less than an hour and it will usually cause flash flooding in Melbourne or Sydney. They have a really strong relationship with climate change. But the bit that's a bit more unclear is how climate change will affect the positioning of the weather systems, so the positioning of the lows and the highs. And these are really important for your multi-day rainfall events. So like we saw in February and March in 2020, how the rain just sat there for sort of, Brisbane got three days of above 200 millimetres. So it really just sat there for days, dumping a huge amount of rainfall on the one location. And that's why we got such widespread flooding. And so that's the part that we're really unsure about. And that's why it's quite unclear how, whether climate change is going to lead to more droughts or more floods. Uh, uh, the other, go on, yeah. sorry. No, keep talking. Oh, the other... Um, aspect is that it can kind of lead to both, which is super counterintuitive and very confusing. Basically, in situations where it is already dry, that drought might be worse. Whereas in situations where it's already wet, that that rainfall amount might be worse. And that's why we can get both extremes. And I I do feel sorry for people because it is incredibly confusing. It it is, uh, and I, we'll, we'll get onto that a little bit more, but I just wanted to talk about uh, El Nino and La Nina just a fraction more because that seems to be the sort of signal, uh, the oscillator or whatever, that, that, that tells us which of those conditions are likely to apply in Australia or whether it's going to be dry or wet. And uh, again, it's, uh, we didn't really talk about, we, we, you mentioned the shift in winds and the cold air rising uh, during uh, La Nina for Australia, but uh, what actually, uh, does climate change also have a role there or do we have, uh, does science have a, have a view as to what causes this oscillation? Do you mean the effect of climate change on this oscillation or just well, in general? Well, gen generally, let's start yeah. with what causes the oscillation and then let's talk about whether climate change, uh, if, if you wish to, uh, <laughs> makes it, is likely to make it, you know, how it will impact it. Yeah, so the, because of fundamental science is it's to do with this oscillation or waves of heat blobs that move along the Pacific Ocean. And because the Pacific is so big, it takes sort of about two to seven years for a, this blob of warm ocean water to move from east to west across the Pacific. And this oscillation is why it's called the El Nino Southern Oscillation. And this really controls the flip between El Nino and La Nina and whether we get warm ocean temperatures at the surface. 
as for climate change, the big problem is while our climate models do a pretty good job at capturing the planet, they do still have issues. And one of those issues is in getting El Nino and La Nina correct. And so there has been some work suggesting that in a warmer world, we might see more extreme El Ninos and La Nina events. And so that means we'll likely see more extreme drought and flood. But often these studies, they may only be based on a couple of models or, and so basically we, we don't have enough studies that all say the same thing. And we're not super duper confident that the models are accurately capturing this climate pattern. And so a lot of scientists are a bit hesitant to say exactly what's gonna happen because we're still, we're still rap- well, we're still doing a lot of research on this topic and we don't have a perfect answer yet, unfortunately. No, and so just, uh, you mentioned uh, a big blob of, of, of warm water uh, and I mean, does it just gradually dissipate at some point and then some other blob forms somewhere else and, and, and also travels, did you mention from east to west? I uh... Yes, so it's it's all a big feedback loop, basically. So as during an onion, you say that as the temperature gradient across the Pacific gets really, really large, that's then going to affect how strong the winds across the equator are. And you get to a point where it basically can reverse the the temperature gradient. If the temperature gets too strong across the equator, you'll get a, eventually it'll kind of just swing back into the other phase. Um, that's why we tend not to stay in an El Nino or a La Nina indefinitely. So there's this shift of this blob of heat across the equator that happens on quite long timescales, but it's, it's all a big feedback of all these different um, we call them waves interacting with each other across the ocean. And basically if, if the winds get too strong, they'll eventually kind of counter themselves and flip back to the other, to the other phase. So it's a kind of self-correcting uh, loop up to a point. Yes. Good. Well, I'm glad we got through that because it seems to me it's going to be uh, a developing area of science and probably has been for uh, a long time, along with a lot of others. Now, now, Kim, just uh, changing uh, slightly, I noticed that you're uh, on the forecasting group <laughs> at Monash University. Is that a weather forecast? I, I, I love talking about forecasting, mainly because as an sh- uh, investment banking analyst, we had to do a lot of it. And I got to learn how um, how useless my forecasts were, but how also how people needed them, whether they were right or wrong. And I guess, so that forecasting group forecasts weather? So I'm part of the forecasting group for the, what's called the Access NRI. So Access is Australia's climate model. And so uh, the NRI is a, it's a research initiative. So it's basically the body that funds um, research technology like like a telescope would f- um, but for climate scientists we don't have telescopes we have models and it's a new initiative and so my job is to build up a community of people working in forecasting research and so it's not operational forecasts like they do at the bureau we're not forecasting next week's weather or anything it's more about researching how we can improve forecasts and my particular area is what we call sub-seasonal forecasting so this is incredibly useful especially for energy but also incredibly difficult. And it's trying to forecast above or below average weather at sort of two to six week time scales. And I'm trying to do that with rainfall, which 
is a challenge, but we're actually getting some interesting results that I'm happy to talk about if you think no, that's interesting. No, I'm, I'm happy to hear, like in the sort of forecasting that I'm interested in, uh, it's a lot about judgment and working out, uh, or, or it might be about, um, you know, comp- uh, artificial intelligence type models, which are, uh, you know, time series type uh, improvements and, and, and regression type stuff. But in the human side, it's about uh, working out which people are good at forecasting and why, and, you know, making frequent revisions and stuff like that. But I'm interested in, in, in what results you've been getting and, and why, what, what areas you're looking at to improve the forecasts. Yes. So one of the big differences between weather forecasts and say economic forecasts is my understanding is that economic forecasts tend to be statistical. They're based on regression analyses, whereas weather forecasts, these are based on dynamics. So our physical understanding of how the weather patterns move and basically the supercomputers, they calculate, they solve all these differential equations every single hour over little grids that are situated over the globe and what that does is it tells us how the winds or the pressure or the temperature evolve over time so it's quite different from a typical uh, economic model in that it's but, but it, it's diff- it's different uh, but but also uh, there will be a set of assumptions that go into those equations underlying and you know like any other model uh, the uh, the accuracy of the logic and the accuracy of the assumptions uh, are what's going to drive the accuracy of the output or the usefulness of it. Absolutely. And one of the big challenges is for an accurate weather forecast, you need good observations. And there are a lot of parts of the world where we don't have good observations, especially yet over the ocean, for example. And yet a lot of these challenges that you see in coming up with your initial conditions and your assumptions, we also face as well. Right. Uh, and so, um, but just to be clear, could you just also switch in gears again, um, you know, as someone I think that um, is, is sort of, um, how, do you, how would you describe, you know, um, the field of climate science? Is it, is it a good area like as, to work in, in the sense, is, is it a growing area? Is money coming into it? Is the science advancing? Uh, or, or, you know, just talk to me about the state of the, the industry of climate science, if I can put it that way. Wow. Okay. I'm, I will say first, I'm very junior. I'm only a year or two out of my PhD, so I'm not fully aware of all of the funding, but we have seen recently this uh, Access NRI, so this new initiative to really pump some money into research of improving Australia's climate model, which is fantastic and something we really need to do in order to understand how climate change is going to affect Australia's weather. In saying that there have been quite a lot of cuts to universities and to government climate research organisations like CSIRO and the Bureau over the past few decades. And the amount of funding that goes into Australian climate research is a lot less than what they're doing overseas. And so it's quite challenging for us to try and compete with what they're doing overseas. There are There was a new centre of excellence that's just been funded. So this is a seven year uh, funding for researchers at five of Australia's universities to try and understand how weather patterns are going to be changing over the 21st century, which again is super important for understanding Australia's vulnerability to future climate change. And so although there have been these good initiatives, there is still this background decreasing trend in funding for our universities and for government organisations that just makes it hard for us to compete internationally. 
And when you look at that's the Australian perspective, and yeah. when you look at it uh, internationally, to the extent that you, that you can, uh, um, I guess just ask. I want to ask about the state of the science as opposed to the funding. Um, um, do do you think that the science is is advancing, you know, in a way that's going to be make much of a difference, or or does it seem stuck at a point? I mean, we've had these computer models for a while now. And we've had uh, like simplified versions, I think, of the models too that are trying to just sort of, um, and then we have consensus views of the models as uh, as well. But uh, tell me a little bit to the extent you you want to about what's actually going on in the science. Progress in science is typically slow, but it it does happen. And one of the biggest uh, challenges with climate modelling is that we need a lot of computer power. So. What we try and, we're trying to do is you're doing hundreds of differential equations over tiny little, we basically split the globe up into a whole bunch of little grids and say, for example, one degree latitude by one degree longitude, and that's already 360 multiplied by 180 grids. You're doing that for every day for a 30 year period. So times that by how many thousand, tens of thousands that is, and that's how many calculations you're trying to do every second. and so. One of the biggest limitations on how well we can do that is our supercomputing powers. And so over the years, of course, we've got more power, more, got more computer power. And so we're able to go to finer and finer grids. So instead of looking at a one degree latitude, longitude snapshot of the planet, we can go even finer and maybe get a 50 kilometer or a 10 kilometer snapshot of the planet. And why this is important is because a lot of weather happens on scales that are smaller than one degree by one degree long, which is about a hundred kilometers. So when we're using climate models that can only capture at the smaller scale, a hundred kilometers, you're not going to be getting detailed information about strong rainfall. And that's why there's a lot of uncertainty about rainfall patterns, for example, whereas we understand temperature quite well. So one of the big challenges and goals that people are working towards is going to this higher resolution modeling and so going to sort of 10 kilometer scales where we can actually start to physically show a thunderstorm rather than having to make assumptions about what the thunderstorm is doing. And so this is a big area of development. The other area is scientists are really starting to incorporate machine learning and artificial intelligence. So even if we don't have enough computing power to get the supercomputers to calculate that, finer resolution 10 degree grid, we might be able to train a machine learning model to do it. And the benefit of that is that it requires a lot less computing power to run a machine learning model than a climate model. And I think it's a really exciting area at the moment, just because we have these cool developments in high resolution modeling and machine learning that are really starting to take off. And I think they'll be growing a lot in the next decade or two. That's great. Uh, I, 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 and I guess, um, uh, well, let me also ask um, about the consensus at the moment is coming back to what I guess is near term, by which I mean the next, uh, you know, from here around, I guess my near term is a, is a year to three years, uh, or, or might be half an hour, but <laughs> uh, in, the, in, financial, in electricity prices, it might be five minutes. But um, 
In in terms of the next three years, what do you want to say about La Nina, or or what would you say El Nino? I mean, if are, are we definitely going to move into an El Nino? I guess that's a question everyone wants to know. And then, is it going to be a big one? And how long is it going to last? Uh, can you talk about that stuff at all? Yeah. So it's definitely more likely than not that we're going to move into an El Nino. I think the World Meteorology Organization, that's the UN body of meteorology are going for about a 90% chance of an El Nino and a 10% chance of neutral with pretty much zero chance of La Nina happening. The Bureau are kind of hesitating because there have been instances in the past where we've had this strong ocean signal of La Nina, but the trade winds, the winds that blow across the Pacific that I mentioned earlier, haven't shown the, the El Nino pattern that we'd expect. And so it's happened before where we've had what looks like a strong El Nino about to develop and then it's kind of fizzled. And so there is this small chance that it could fizzle, but I think currently all the, all the weather organisations and all the models are really pointing to an El Nino developing within the next, well, WMO's already declared it, but during winter and spring of this year. Typically an El Nino will kind of, well, the effects of an El Nino over Australia will kind of disappear around autumn. So we should see these impacts sort of from now until the end of summer, but it could um, reinvigorate again next year during winter and spring. They typically last sort of a couple of years and then on average sort of seven, it takes about seven years for it to flip back into a La Nina. Um, but again, these are all averages. As we've so seen so sorry, you've just confused. <laughs> yes, of course, they're averages. And of course, uh, you know, I'm interested in trends and whether the trends are real or just what or just trends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whether the series is stationary or not stationary. But uh, I guess I'm confused a little bit. You mentioned it's one one year and then it might reinvigorate next year. And then it takes seven years till we get a complete change in the cycle. But so what happens yes. the other five years? Nothing much. It's just all neutral. It, Hopefully. We've we've had a big La Nina flip into an El Nino, so it would be nice to get some neutral years. But again, we can't really forecast much, very well beyond a few months out. And, and why why can't we forecast? I mean, isn't this big blob of warm water sort of moving in a predictable... I mean, why? what's the limitation on understanding it? it uh, to, yeah. So this really goes back to chaos theory, um, which... If you haven't heard of, basically it's the idea that any kind of small change in the initial conditions of a model can lead to a big change further down the road. So basically, if we don't have perfect observations feeding into the model, which we can't possibly have, we we don't have a perfect observational network, then any kind of small error can, I guess, exacerbate with time and grow into a large error. And so by the time that that happens and it becomes so big that we can't make a useful prediction, that's typically our window of predictability is before that. So that's why we, we tend to say with the, the ocean aspect of an El Nino, we can sort of forecast it a couple of months ahead accurately. And personally, I wouldn't trust much beyond a few months. That's great. Um, uh, Kim, I've run out of, uh, I mean, it's an endless topic, but I've run out of my knowledge to ask uh, questions that might be useful. Um, is there anything else you'd, you'd like to tell our, our listeners? Um, I guess one of the key things that we haven't touched on is that whilst El Nino and La Nina are 
influence Australian weather considerably. They're not the only influence. We also have uh, similar weather patterns that go on in the Indian Ocean, in the Southern Ocean. And it's really this combination of factors that will drive Australia's weather. So just because an El Nino is declared doesn't mean it's going to be drought everywhere. It's important to look at other factors that are going on as well. And so when you look at the, uh, what is it, the southern, the annual or thing, southern, an southern annual American. Yeah, that yeah. one and the Indian Ocean Dipole. Uh, is there anything <laughs> uh, that, that we should be aware of uh, for, for those right now? Yeah, so there's indication that we might get a positive Indian Ocean Dipole, which is typically associated with drier than average conditions. More so in Western Australia, the sand changes around a lot more regularly. It's because it's it's more of an atmospheric phenomenon and so and that dictates the positioning of things like cold fronts and low pressure systems across across southern Australia so in winter a negative southern annual mode is typically associated with more cold fronts while a positive is associated with less um, so yeah have a look at all the drivers when you're making your decisions yes but no I'm not going to do that because I'm not confident <laughs> to judge them uh, that's right. why we ask people like you to uh... <laughs> <laughs> the Bureau will summarise it. Yeah, they will indeed. <laughs> All right, Kim Reid, thanks very much for being a guest on Energy Insiders. I appreciate it. I hope to learn more about it myself so that next time we have a discussion, I can ask uh, uh, questions that, uh, that, that will further develop our audience's um, uh, understanding. Thanks again very much. Thanks for having me. And that was uh, Kimberly Reid from Monash University talking about the climate things. Well, look, I mean, I can't imagine any better clarion call from um, Kimberly Reid and all the other climate scientists responding to these temperatures and these um, these ice um, records as well. But um, I'm not too sure whether we're going to get the policy response that um, that we should be getting, David, um, particularly with the coalition um digging its hole for nuclear again, which is a technology that, if it was to pr prove useful, at least in Australia's case, um, won't be able to, as Mr Finkel, Professor Alan Finkel pointed out um, in a recent Energy Insiders podcast, that um, for at least another couple of decades, and what we need to do is to get on with things um, this decade. That's right. Uh, I agree with that. Uh, I do actually pretty agree with that. Nuclear may be a good technology, but uh, and it may have its place, but it's not really needed in most of the studies that I've seen, and doesn't offer any advantage uh, over the other alternatives that I've uh, that we're currently progressing down. Uh, but uh, what I am seeing uh, all the time is this continual blowout in the difficulty of actually building a wind farm or a solar farm or a transmission line, which continues to astonish me. And I was interested, uh, Giles, to read this week that uh, the wind farm developers are all complaining about how slow it is in New South Wales and how hard it is, considering that we had only a few weeks ago James Hay from Energy Co. Uh, talking about how you know there were dedicated people and experts who were in the Department of Planning who were helping to assess this, but it doesn't seem to actually be helping very much. No, look, there just seems to be a bit of a disconnect, I think, between what the part Department of Energy, of which Energy Co, I think, is an agency, um, and what the other departments of the New South Wales government are thinking. Um, now, it's been suggested to me that um, the Department of Planning, which seems to be the problem here, um, has, um, you know, more things on its agenda, sort of dealing with national, re regional MPs, mostly national MPs, and seems to have a different sort of culture than the people in the, um, in the Energy Department are quite keen, who, who understand 
coal is going to close down, we need to have a replacement. So that's why they've been busy rolling out renewable energy zones, starting off auctions and things like that. But the trouble is we're running out of capacity, available capacity now. We keep on hearing about 100 gigawatts or so of people interested in developing or capacity that could be developed in New South Wales, but precious little has been developed. Um, there's complaints about all along the planning chain, the uncertainty, and this new thing what they they describe as what they call soft lodgements. And they're basically, as a way I understand it, is that soft lodgement means not so much a formal application. Just come in and tell us what you're sort of you know what you want to do, and we'll re reply to that. And people are finding this pro process really frustrating because there's no real defined parameters around it. There's all sorts of these unexpected sort of responses. Department of Planning responds by saying, well, when they do actually lodge, get their lodgement in, we're dealing with these quite quickly. And they cited, for instance, today, um, the Glen Forest Solar Farm done in 80 days. But what other people point out is that that might have been after the lodgement was formally delivered or um, lodged um, the, the application was formally lodged, but there was an awful lot going on beforehand. And they're just saying it's just... Um, and and, and Rystart Energy came out with this data this week as well to, um, to its subscribers, just pointing out that New South Wales applications are currently running at less than half or around about half the capacity needed to actually fulfil the 2030 targets. And, of course, this goes on top of all the commissioning problems and, and connection problems and, as you said before, just building transmission. Yes, but I, and it's, uh, it's, it is right to talk about the process and, and what needs to be done to improve that. Uh, but on top of that, I don't actually think the wind companies are entirely blameless. They, they refuse to commit to anything uh, until it's all basically, you know, until they can put the resulted revenue in the bank. You know, they basically want to have the money in the bank before they start actually committing to anything. So that would be a complaint. Uh, I don't think the yeah, takeover okay. of CWP by... Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, David. Yeah, no, look, look, I'd agree with that. And I, I don't think um, I, um, the wind and the solid developers aren't blameless and neither are some of the people responsible for the transmission planning. I think in some cases it's been badly handled and that puts people offside and it's very hard to get people back on side afterwards. And I think it's interesting that in Victoria you're seeing the government taking back transmission planning from AEMO, which I think admits internally that it doesn't really have the capacity to do that. And it's interesting that the federal government has appointed um, Andrew Dyer to sort of seek a new way and a new sort of structure of dealing with community issues but I mean it's kind of in some cases you just wonder whether the horse is already bolted you've got Barnaby Joyce running around the place causing trouble up in New England an area you know quite well um, and um, it's just getting you know increasingly difficult. Uh, well it isn't a distant I mean in the end transmission's actually physically no more difficult and probably faster to build than it used to be uh, and wind farm technology. We've built plenty of wind farms. We know how to do it now. So I don't, I don't actually, I think it's really still more around the financials as much and incentives as much as anything else. And I was going to go on and add it that the wind farm developers, you know, won't take any risk, it seems to me, much at the moment. Uh, the takeover of CWP by Andrew Forrest, I think, has slowed things down, frankly, uh, because CWP had a lot of, a number of projects that were all ready to go and they, 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 they seem to have stopped temporarily. And I, I think the big gentailers uh, continue to, um, you know, hasten slowly, if I can put it that way. <laughs> Having said all of that, I'm still confident that, uh, I'm not confident, but I still think it's a reasonable bet that Energy Co has a slow, steady, thorough approach to getting it done. And it will result in the in it getting done uh, just as as bad as it looks just now. I feel I kind of feel like this uh, cricket game or football team where not much is happening, but but 
the momentum is slowly building. Well, let's hope so. I mean, you know, it's um, it's um, yes. I, I think everyone's very keen to get on with things, but um, there just seems to be some sort of you know um, inertia somewhere. But um, but there you go, um, David. Um, I'm not too sure whether there's much else to um, talk about this week. Um, we've both been on the run for various reasons, um, and apologies for my lousy um, broadcast quality. But um, I'm on the run and don't have my microphone with me. Um, but unless you can think of something else, I might just uh, wrap it all up. Well, Giles, the uh, two things I want to say is, uh, as, as you might have mentioned in the article, that uh, because the wind and solar is, is not getting developed all that quickly, nevertheless, we're still going to get the rollout of these Eltessas uh, every three months. And secondly, uh, people will do what they have to do to keep the lights on, which either means keeping the existing generation going longer, which is entirely the wrong answer, or they're going to build more storage in the meantime. Uh, and so we are going to keep seeing development of storage, I think. The second thing, I th general policy point, is that uh, I do think it's, it would be interesting to hear from the, say, the federal government as to how they're seeing the whole thing. I mean, uh, we didn't really have this 80% renewable target as a, as a, as a common catch and It's a great target uh, before uh, the current Labor government was in power. But now let's see what needs to be done to actually get a, get us there what do you think yeah well exactly well we have to put this to the um to the minister very shortly in, a, in an upcoming podcast so um that'll be interesting look one thing i do mention i did forget beforehand was the um, hydrogen strategy so um a couple of papers were put out on friday just a couple of hours ago before we recorded this podcast one talking about a review of the um, hydrogen strategy which is interesting because it seems to be geared towards what realistically can we do domestically rather than this sort of um, overinflated um, predictions of becoming an export superpower before we actually d develop a domestic hydrogen um, industry. And the other one is um, sort of um, laying out a few more of the details of the $2 billion hydrogen support scheme that was announced in the budget. And we're basically looking at production credits and how they will be applied, minimum projects of 50 megawatt um, electrolyzers. And of course, this is quite essential to be able to sort of attract capital to Australia, which is being sort of lured away, uh, particularly to the US, but also to Europe. So um, that's a really interesting development as well. And that's probably uh, enough from us this week. What do you think, Giles? That's what I think too. Thank you very much, David. Look, thanks um, for Kimberly Reid too, who joined us at very short notice to talk about the latest disturbing climate data. Um, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evigen and Pylon. Thanks to everyone listening out there. Do please listen to the uh, Solar Insiders podcast and the Driven podcast. And we've got an exciting new series to watch out for launching in the next couple of weeks, a series of podcasts focusing on electrification um, as part of a particular project um, that we're going to be rolling out over the next six months. So do watch out for that. Thank you, David. And I think that's all for this week. We'll be back next week. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.